welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. I was hoping we could talk about the concept of more and social media and the competition, not only unhealthy from a societal point of view, but really fo- like honing in on, on the individual. Because I know you've spoken before and mm-hmm. it's a common theme that a lot of people find themselves constantly engaging with social media, despite not enjoying the process of engaging, nor then enjoying the the, the reaction that they get, or even just being a part of it. For those of uh, people that are watching that aren't familiar with the concept of Moloch, could you give us a little bit of colour about the concept and also how it ties in with with social media and also someone's mental health and well-being? Mm. Yeah, so basically uh, a a Moloch-y situation. So, well, okay, Moloch originally is uh, comes from an old Bible story um, about this cult who would sacrifice, you know, they wanted to win wars so badly that they would sacrifice the thing that they cared the most about, the thing that they held most dear, which was their children, to like a burning effigy of this thing in the hope that by making this ultimate sacrifice, they would be able to win more wars, you know, have get more power and and, and uh, more military might. So it it comes from this like arguably this, this very old w- wisdom about like this th- there's there's certain things that can kind of like infect the human mind, you know, or, or a way of thinking where you end up sacrificing more and more um, important other things in order to win a narrow goal. So that's like why I you know. I, it sort of becomes synonymous with this idea of like unhealthy competition, you know, of negative sum games where um, the world is worse off for the game having existed in the first place, you know, for the competition of happening. Um, and so it's kind of become this, this demon has become synonymous with this concept of like unhealthy, uh, unhealthy games. And the particular way that these games tend to sort of play out um, is what's often known as like, it's, it's even known as like a social dilemma um, a multipolar trap, um, or perhaps an easier way of thinking, is called like a Moloch trap, where basically individuals in a given situation, um, you know, who are trying to get ahead, sort of end up doing the thing that they, that even though they don't particularly want to do this 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 negative thing, they kind of have to do it anyway because if they don't, they're going to get left behind everyone else who does. So, a particular example that, of way this is playing out in 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 social media. Is, for example, uh, these beauty filters that are now like on almost every single platform, uh, certainly TikTok, Instagram, et cetera, uh, where, you know, with, with a, just a click of a button, they can morph your features uh, and, you know, and beautify you essentially, um, which is very intoxicating. Um, you know, I, I played around with these things and I noticed, I was like, wow, this genuinely, you know, if I liked a picture before, once I've applied the filter to it, it's like, damn, now this looks really good. So there's this really strong incentive pressure on individuals, particularly if, you know, if young people who want to become influencers, social media influencers, they're really incentivized to use whatever tactics they can in order to sort of get more, um, you know, to get more attention, to outcompete 
their other the other influencers for for likes and and follows etc. So they end up using these filters basically. These filters end up becoming ubiquitous and like you, you notice like almost. You, you now have to assume that when you see a really, really good picture, you have to assume there's some kind of beauty filter on it, um, of, of a, on a social media influencer. And the thing is, is that even, you know, it, it, it's not like necessarily they want to use these these filters, um, but they're under such a strong incentive that if they don't, they'll feel like everyone else, you know, they, they know they're going to get left behind everyone else who does, so they end up doing it anyway. So that's a, uh, what you would call a monarch trap um, or a multipolar trap. And that same kind of process is playing out um, in sort of all different areas of society. Um, another example is in um, the mainstream media where, you know, cl- clickbait and um, particularly sort of intentionally triggering polarizing content is becoming more and more commonplace, again, because it's such a sort of competitive ecosystem out there. They're all trying to, you know, not only compete against more and more new media companies, but also compete against social media. Um, Big newspapers are are under more and more pressure to do whatever they can to continue capturing market share. Um, And that usually means creating, you know, figuring out what the current like hot, you know, culture wars topic is, and then making inflammatory content that they know will rile up their audience so that they keep getting driving engagement. Um, So that's another example of like, um, Moloch, you know, Molochy forces infecting um, a competitive ecosystem. And is this why so many people when they go online, either feel angry or upset, or in some instances, both? Is, Is this the fundamental reason why we're we're struggling mentally when it comes to engaging with the internet. I'm speaking specifically about social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. I, you know, I mean, it, it's it's multifactorial, obviously, and um, there are other reasons as well. Like, it's it's genuinely true. Like, certainly since COVID and so on, like the world has gotten like arguably more unstable. You know, we've got a big war going on. There's um, there are genuine reasons to feel scared and, and anxious, but it's it's a bit of like a chicken and egg situation because if you look at like mental health trends and such, they have really taken a downhill turn since the advent of social media. Um, certainly, you know, especially in young people since the early 2000, you know, like 2010 onwards. And that was before like the world, like everything was actually doing pretty well there. So, okay. Yes. It's hard to say what, you know, what was the, the, the initial causative factor, but it's definitely this kind of like spiraling process where, um, we are, you know, we are more online than ever. We, we almost spend more of our waking, many people spend more of their waking moments consuming online content than they do, you know, real world analog content, um, being out, you know, touching grass or whatever. Uh, and these algorithms essentially, which, you know, are the things sort of that make social media go around are optimizing not for human health or for accuracy or truth. They're optimizing for engagement. And that. Um, decoupling is where like these molecular forces come into play. Um, and yes, I think it's one of the main reasons why um, people's mental health has taken such a bad turn. Um, and, you know, uh, the more un- mentally unhealthy a population is, the harder it is for them to actually then solve problems. And so the problems get worse, which makes them even crazier. And it, and it just spirals and spirals. So yeah, it's, it's a, a very large part in this sort of causative chain. With your experience of social media, because you've got such 
an incredible insight of the forces that are trying to manipulate you into certain behavior. Does that give you some immunity from the reaction or are you just as likely to feel some of the effects? Because I'm trying to, this is my way of trying to find out what is our way out of it? Is it by first identifying Mm -hmm. what we're trying to get us to do and then maybe that leads to some personal responsibility over how we interact? But starting with you, Liv, you shook your head, so I'm guessing you you still felt the same as everyone else. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it being aware of it definitely helps. But for me personally, like it hasn't fixed it. Like I'm still as addicted to Twitter, for example, as ever. Um, and I, I mean, honestly, I, my Instagram addiction is not quite so bad because I am able to basically, basically, if I delete the Instagram app off my phone, I don't have the desire to go and look on it. But if I'm if it's on my phone, then I'll find myself. That's like a slightly di- more, it's a slightly different emotion on Instagram. Instagram is kind of like amusing yourself to death i don't know if it's like wire heading where you're just like plugged in and i just like my feed is just giving me just the most perfectly entertaining types of animal videos and like stuff that makes my brain it's not upsetting it's actually like very placating content but it's like you know like it's like digital heroin kind of um i know it's not good for me and i just want to like keep keep consuming it and then like twitter is a slightly different form um of like unpleasantness and that it's it's it, you know, that's like where all the culture war stuff is playing out. Um, and the trouble is, is that Twitter is still an incredibly, like, it's still the most important platform, I think, on the internet, um, because it's just like real time information of the like, and particularly if you follow like a nice sort of diverse range of people who are also smart and sort of tapped into like current events, you just cannot get a bit more like accurate real time um sort of vibe of what's going on. Like it was incredibly useful to me during like the early stages of the pandemic. I, I you know, I was pretty sure COVID was going to be a huge deal in like early January. And that's a large part because, I mean, first of all, I went to, uh, I was in China in, in uh, early January. So that of 2020, so that obviously helped. But like, then I was on Twitter and I followed some certain people who were like paying attention to this, like pandemic specialists. And, you know, I, I it, it was such a useful resource um so yeah that's the argument for having it but then the flip side is i know that it like there are certain cultural topics that reliably trigger me and even though i'm aware of this when i go on there i still i feel the like rage come up and they're like oh i need to share this like i can't believe this person saying this um even now and so yeah i haven't found a way to unhook my brain from twitter um, and the thing is, it's, it's also just like a really good platform for spreading my ideas. So I need to have it. So if I want to try and do this, like, you know, defeating Moloch work. So it's, it's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky one that I haven't found a particularly good solution for. Um, but that said, awareness is, is the first port of call. And I think to be fair, I think a lot of people these days are like at least partially aware that like, these, you know, these algorithms, at least of like how much time they spend on there. And maybe they have glimmers of the past of like, I wasn't on this, I'm on my phone this much seven years ago. I'd like to think some people are aware of it, but like some are like completely lost and just like, as far as they're concerned, it's completely normal and reasonable way of living your life, just being plugged in all the time. Where does personal responsibility come into this? Because obviously education is an important part if someone's very unhappy with a form of repetitive behavior. Because the algorithms are always going to be ahead of us, right? They're always going to be feeding us stuff that we we want and we need before we even know it. You've obviously struggled with it. I think most people have struggled with that right balance of using social media for the force of good that it can be. 
But what's your advice on, mm. on somebody can begin to take personal responsibility? Because ultimately, the social networks, the, the, the platforms, they don't have your best interest at heart, right? Right. Well, that's uh, the first thing is is to realize that you are not the customer, you are the product being sold. The advertisers that pay to serve ads on the platforms, they are the customers that the social media companies are catering for, and they're the ones that they care about. The users, I mean, they care a little bit about the users, but in the same way that like a factory farmer cares about making sure that the cows are like still living, you know, so that they produce milk for their children, you know, for them, for the calves, uh, what produce milk for the humans that the calves were meant to have. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's realizing that is like a big step. You're like, okay, I am, I am the like the, the obedient little animal logging on and, you know, walking in and I'm being milked and the milk is going off and my milk is tasty for the advertisers who consume it. Um, <laughs> that's that's the first step yeah and then and then and then like the next the next thing is just like really be aware of like culture wars related content um because like the like the do do i need to define culture wars or do you think most people know i think what that means at this point okay um yeah i'm sure yeah i hope so um, basically anything that's like a very current hot topic, you know, whether it's like, uh, or possibly race related, uh, crime or, uh, or, uh, something to do with tra- tra- trans rights or anything like that. Any topic that's like very much in the mainstream news cycle is most likely got some kind of Malachian culture wars energy driving it. Um, that is, it's like a self-perpetuating monster that just like wants to keep feeding off people's outrage and fury, uh, to keep the wheels turning thing, you know, kind of like the, the, it's just like the, the, you know, the war machine that like Black Sabbath sang about. Well, it's the culture war machine. It's like a bunch of algorithms beneath the surface driving this like tension, keeping it going. And that's this thing that's tearing us apart. Um, so I've really been trying the last few months to like notice like when, because obviously my my you know these algorithms are very good at it. Like my Twitter feed is often a lot of stuff that I know it, you know I've clicked on and I've engaged on because I care about right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ask myself when I'm about to share something or like post a comment, I'm like, is this you know is Moloch happy that I'm about to share this? Is this feeding the culture wars machine? And if I can just get that glimmer of consciousness before I click send, and like usually then I'm like, you know what? this is feeding the machine but I'm, I'm not perfect at it and I still there's plenty of them slip through the net and it's annoying because you know these points I want to make even though I know they're feeding the culture wars machine like are genuinely like I do think they are correct and accurate and I stand behind them but at the same time it's like uh in the bigger picture like does this particular one matter that much there's like much bigger issues you know especially now we've got like AI looming and so on so I really you know I, I personally been just like using uh, I guess it kind of like just doing as much big picture thinking whenever possible before I click send on anything, building some kind of like uh, stopping mechanism in my brain before I, before I go and you know get involved in yet another culture war topic. And I guess that's where I was leading us towards is before anyone does anything, how can you get away from this monarchy mindset? Is it is it as simple as before you do anything? anything think who am i serving here is it moloch or is it win-win 
Is that sometimes enough, do you think, just to give you that opportunity rather than the impulsive click, click, tap, send to give you a moment's respite to go, what God am I worshipping today? Yeah, um, it certainly helped me a lot. Um, I think a big part of that, though, is because I've like, spent a lot of time like meditating and like like feeling this this concept of you know both both of these entities right like um sounds sounds strange but you know like when i've made this content on like you know where i've dressed up as moloch and, and tried to like bring it to life like i've really gone in there and imagined like what does this like pathologically competitive psycho creature feel like um and then conversely like what does win-win feel like how does wit like yeah, how does it approach a com- competitive situation? Oh, okay, take treats it as a lot of fun, but it's like always got the wisdom of thinking about the bigger picture. Um, so for me personally, like those two words are like I have a, I can feel what they feel like, and so it's easy to sort of drop in and be like, oh, okay. I, my advice for people listening is, you know, if those words don't resonate with them yet, which is understandable, they're probably new concepts. Find whatever yours is that is essentially seeking the same thing you know like is this am i am i driving the culture wars machine here is is this is what the culture wars machine wants me to do um if yes okay um or is you know is this serving you know whatever your personal spiritual what resonates with you is like a high form of spirituality whether that's you know god religion um the scientific method whatever that may be for you like Try and drop into that character and be like, is this what this would actually be like? Yeah, you know what? You're really serving the long run greater good here. You've always been quite wary of AI. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's always been kind of this abstract concept that something's going to happen in the future. But it feels like recently things have just progressed so, so quickly. And we're now almost in this arms race where the first mover advantage is is what everyone's playing for. Uh, now that we're seeing some of these technologies come to everyday consumer use, are you still as wary as you always have been, Liv? And how fearful are you that we could un- open a Pandora's box if we don't take a more collaborative approach to this technology? Um, I'm more concerned than ever. Um, yeah, I, as you said, I, I've been like, yeah, I got involved in the effective altruism movement back in like 2014. And that was when I first sort of heard the arguments about like, look, at some point, artificial intelligence is going to become such a big issue uh what well, is an issue that we are not prepared to to handle yet um and but that felt, it felt so abstract back in 2014 i was like okay yeah we've got like good games playing ais um but like nothing can write like a human nothing can yeah it, it felt so as you say abstract and, and far off that it, it it never like internally i got the, i got it logically that like yes at some point if something is by definition more intelligent than a human, um, it's going to be increasingly hard to control that. In, and, and any difference in a, in a like values will become massive when when as as its potency and capabilities um, increase, and especially if its rate of growth is likely to be exponential in terms of its capability improvements, whereas humans are kind of at best linear. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, but yeah, it wasn't until like really the last uh, the last couple of years where it really started like hitting home and being like oh boy we're gonna see how this one plays out because that's the thing like even amongst like ai safety researchers within the uh effective altruism community over the last like 10 years you know there was a r- very broad range of opinions in terms of like oh when is like some people think of it as a singularity you know or artificial general intelligence um 
it was always felt like at least 30, 40, 50 years away. And timelines, like the, the the aggregate sort of estimate of of the community, have gotten shorter and shorter and shorter to the point where I'm now like, my 50-50 point is like within the next 10 years. So, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, and, and, the thing, and the thing is, is that I haven't shown, I, I haven't seen sufficient increase in our ability to solve Moloch dynamics um, that would be required to to solve in order to to ensure that we build these things, you know, build super intelligence safely. Um, in fact, I would say almost our ability to do that has gotten worse over the last sort of ten years. Again, partly I think due to like these sort of like social media like misaligned algorithm type dynamics that are just making everybody insane and hostile and and distrustful. So um, yeah. Short answer is I'm I'm very very concerned. It feels that pushing a technology that we really don't understand very much about. I know I've heard you say that even researchers working on some of these large language models don't can't articulate exactly how it's working. It just feels that pushing this technology when the prime objectives are power, money, and influence, when we don't really understand it, is incredibly dangerous and is an existential threat. To, to all of us. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to fear monger because there's so much positivity around this and how it can help and how it solve some problems. But ultimately it's hard to escape that feeling of, we don't know, really know what we're doing. So there needs to be checks and balances, collaboration. Are you seeing any steps towards a collaborative approach that you're happy with? Or do you think that the the, the, the power, the, the financial motivations are going to overpower everything else? Um. I have actually seen some positive signs. Um, I mean, I'm not. Some companies have been more mollicky than others. Um, like Microsoft in particular, just like routinely saying just things where you're like, "Wow, you just you were just being full on Moloch here, and you don't even yeah, like shamelessly Moloch." Um, whereas others, you know, like think of the pressure that Google have been under the last few months to release. They're, you know, I'm sure they've got a bunch of cool stuff under the, you know, waiting in the wings. Um, but they, and they've been under, like, for the first time, an immense amount of pressure to release, like, everything quickly to get the attention back away from OpenAI, but they haven't actually done that. So, like, that is actually a positive update for me, um, seeing as they are still one of the major players. Mm-hmm. Um, OpenAI, there's some, definitely some very good people there. Um, but again, like, they Basically, I, like companies which are very much adopting the Silicon Valley of move fast and break things philosophy um, are the ones acting in you know that that's that's definitely a molecular direction that you should that that needs to be paid attention to, um, and companies that don't do that are like you know more of a is, is obviously like the direction we want people to be at, behaving in, and. The, that said, like the fact that people are getting to get, like you know, they just had this White House meeting with all the big, um, all the big leaders. That's definitely better that that happened than it didn't. I think you know, like I, that might have been inconceivable two years ago. Even though people have been warning that we need to be actually be having more collaboration and less of an arms race. Um, so the fact that that is now happening um, is definitely a, an indication that, like, at least people are, are willing to show. Uh, that they care about cooperation in principle, um, whether that's sufficient to overcome the 
massive incentives to defect is another thing. Um, so yeah, and, and and like the fact that like more like AI sort of uh, le- thought leaders like Jeffrey Hinton coming out and uh, you know basically saying like I'm extremely concerned and like now two out of the three of like the the, the godfathers of AI um, are very openly um, discussing their concerns um, is is again a, a very positive sign. Um, you must know a lot but- of day to day in AI, is there a correlation between the more someone is involved and the more concerned they are? I'm talking about people outside of public facing roles here, or are they more worried about the the future in your experience about the conversations with these people? Um, I mean, it it very much depends of the ones. I mean, the ones who I tend to know, I, I know through my work in effective altruism um, and so it, there's a selection effect going on for people who who are more like conscientious and and um, been thinking about risk and and downsides and aren't like just be- bewitched by dollar signs and power. Um, so it's it's hard to say, um, but yeah, I mean, certainly behind the scenes, almost every AI researcher I've spoken to has major concerns, major major concerns, um, which is again encouraging. But it's I don't even know if like. Even if every AI researcher on Earth suddenly woke up and like really intuitively felt the, the dangers, I still don't even know if that's enough to stop more. <laughs> um, because the like, just like it's 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 kind of a self perpetuating machine. Um, but again, I might I could, I could definitely be wrong. So, uh, but there's you know, and then there's like, you know, I think we should spend some time discussing like there are obviously major upsides as well. But you know, it's it's a bit different to another major existential risk that I'm concerned about, which is um, the dangers of synthetic biology, um, you know, particularly like synthetic pathogens, um, you know, and the, the democratization of the power to be able to build such like essentially weapons of mass destruction. Um, you know, the world, the world is horribly unprepared for that as well. I mean, we like, we pretty much failed COVID, right? <laughs> if COVID was a test, we did not pass that test. Um, luckily, COVID was not that bad. Um, and it still was arguably the biggest, most disruptive event in the last seventy years. Um, and with with a with an existential risk like that, it's the same kind of the again. It's like a sort of distributed um, human technology problem, like AI. Um, but the with that, there's like there's really no upside. It's just like okay, someone creates some horrible devastating pathogen that kills 100% of people and is extremely contagious uh and but because they're an omnicidal maniac they release it uh and everyone dies like there's no upside to that story whatsoever but whereas like at least with like the ai thing there are like with even though it's the most powerful technology ever made in terms of potential harm it can do that's there's also the potential good that it can do so it's just like the 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 calculus is much more complex You've spoken before about the need for artificial general wisdom, not just intelligence. I was hoping mm-hmm. you could explain a little bit more about what you mean by that and why you think that distinction is so important. Yeah, so if it, one of the best definitions of intelligence I've heard is the ability to achieve your goals across a wide range of landscapes, essentially, um, terrains. You know, it doesn't have to be physical terrain, but you know what I mean? Wide range of environments. And just because something, well, whereas wisdom 
a good definition of it is the ability to choose what goals you want to optimize for in the first place. So intelligence is the ability to achieve goals once you figure out what they are, but the wisdom is it's like the bigger picture again, that kind of like win-win picture of, okay, there's all these trillions of different goals I could optimize for, which are actually the best ones that like um, are, uh, you know, will get, create the best outcomes for my, my set of values. Um, and when we're, we're the, 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 the way that people are sort of, the way that AI is currently going is it's like, it's, it's, it's trying to optimize her intelligence as a, and, and, and like winning at goals that like we tell it to, to, you know, hopefully imbue in it. Um, but it doesn't come with, uh, but clearly we aren't actually that good always at assigning goals for what to do, you know, go and look at the state of the rainforest right now, our biosphere, etc. Um, state of social media yeah. like we're clearly not actually good at just you know picking goals in the first place um that are aligned with the long-term health of humanity um so before we go and build uh something that is super intelligently capable of achieving whatever goals it, it you know it either happens to fall into or we tell it to do we need to have this like bigger broader question of how do we have like a super intelligent well super wise entity figuring out what goals we should even be setting these smaller like intelligences loose on in the first place. Um, so that's kind of what I'm getting at. Uh, it's like we need to figure out how to hack wisdom before we hack intelligence. Um, if we can hack the wisdom problem and solve that, then the intelligence problem will be largely trivial, I think. Um, although, don't quote me on that. <laughs> well, you, you, we spoke about AI and then obviously synthetic biological risks. And a lot of very respected thinkers in this field, you know, Nick Bostrom, Toby, all are saying the next century is going to be the most important that humanity has ever encountered. And we need, we might not get through it. There's that many existential risks that, that could potentially be coming our way. Where do you sit on that line in, in the sand? Do you believe that we are at the, the crossroads of some of the most important decisions we're ever going to make uh, as a species? And then following up from that, how confident are you that we are going to be able be able to navigate our way through you know uncharted waters um i think yes it is reasonable to make the assertion that this current decade is more critical than the last decade which was more critical than the last but simply because the nature of you know and it's not perfectly smooth you know there's bumps like i'm sure like the 1940s things could have gone very differently etc but um as technology becomes more and more plan planetarily impactful, the stakes invariably get higher, right? It wasn't and since, you know, the last century did we build a technology that was capable of potentially wiping out almost every human on Earth, you know, nuclear weapons. So it's fair to say that the, the 20th century was more important in the grand scheme of things than the 19th century. Um, and obviously the 19th century was more important than the 18th century because we you know we figured out how to start well, we figure out we just inadvertently started doing stuff that would slowly change change the climate right um so it's uh, it, given that trend i think it's fair to say that the 21st is even more impactful than the 20th because now we're developing basically new forms of weapons of mass destruction whether it's biological um informational um uh and and well again ai i guess is is, is one of those as well right so, yes, I would agree with that statement. Um, that said, it's always worth keeping the sort of caveat in the back of your mind that everyone will naturally 
you know, almost every human in history has the bias that their time is the most important time. And we can look back at all the others and go, well, actually, you're kind of wrong. You were kind of wrong, wrong. But that doesn't mean that the trend line isn't true. Um, and if we make it into the next century, perhaps that century will be even more more important and so on. But uh, I think the, the argument that we are in the most critical century right now uh, in ever is um, very sound. In terms of what do I think, will we make it? It, it, I, honestly, I'm like bipolar on that question. Some days it, it, it's really like a, a function of like how much time have I been spending on Twitter in the last week? Uh, what side of bed did I get out of? Um, what substance, you know, mind-expanding substance have I recently been exposed to? I don't know. Um, uh, I would re What I would do is I would recommend to viewers who want to explore that question, I would recommend reading The Precipice by Toby Ord, who you already mentioned. Um, that's one of the best um, dissections of trying to quantify probabilities. Um, although, you know, it was written five, four, three, four years ago. So it's, even that's going to be a little bit out of date and probably should be upweighted uh, in terms of AI risk at this point. But nonetheless, go read that. Um, in in a nutshell, what he, he his estimates come out to is about a one in six chance of extinction um, this century. I don't, yeah, I don't want to give my own probability because as I say, it's it's just so oscillatory depending on my mood. Um, and I do think this is, these kind of questions at some point using probabilities kind of break down because there is this degree of like, I do believe somewhat that like thoughts create things. And like, if, you know, that's one of my key disagreements, for example, with like Eliezer's approach of like, saying, look, everybody, we're fucked. Uh, I, you know, I give it like a 95% probability that we're not going to figure out AI, so we're all going to die in the next 20 years or whatever. Um, I know that he is being intellectually honest. That's what he truly has come to a conclusion of, and he believes it. And his arguments are also very sound. However, pessimism, you know, uh, the, what, what's the phrase? The, it, it's optimists that build the future, ultimately. Um, and there is danger in robbing all the ox you know optimism out of the air, the oxygen optimism out of the air. Um, and we need to give people hope and possibility in order to find a solution to this. So, and, and given that, it actually makes it really hard to assign a probability because by assigning a probability, you're there. For, the probability kind of affects itself. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, all I will say is win-win, the win-win perspective is like, it takes it, it, you know, it takes the problem seriously, but it keeps a twinkle in its eye and goes, there's a way to figure this out. And that's the philosophy that I, I believe. And I just, I'm going to choose to believe that. And that doesn't mean it's going to be really fucking hard, but it is possible. And, uh, potentially even like self-fulfilling and and like that that's why i feel so uh, like the the need to like get this philosophy out there because i think it's going to it's like a it, you know it's like a spiral to the top and it in and it, it'd be like a positive contagion essentially um and with yeah, so i hope that kind of answers the question <laughs> it absolutely does but i think it feels like there's so much more to play for because with all the other existential risks we could mention with ai or other emerging technologies it's there's, there's so much to gain because if we can navigate totally. it and we can make it work, 
you know, what is 2100 going to look like? Have we solved the, the climate crisis? Have we solved hunger, poverty? There's so much to play right. for. I guess that's why we need to approach this in a different way to biological warfare or the other things we've mentioned, because the upside is more than we could ever possibly imagine. Yeah. And and, and that's where I like, I, uh, yeah, I, I can empathize and align to a degree with like the, you know, the, the accelerationists, for example, they, they strongly believe that this is the only way out and it's, and, and by delaying, um, we're, we're not only like, cutting our cosmic endowment down, um, but actually potentially not solving these big existential issues um, in the first place and, and might wipe ourselves out. My rebuttal to that is that like, yeah, but I think they're not fully internalizing the degree to which the Moloch situation has not been solved and is currently controlling the rate, the the AI development. Um, the, the, yeah, the rate of AI development. Right now, Moloch is, is, is steering that card. Um, but if we can get Moloch out of it and get more of a win-win, uh, behind the wheel, then as you say, it's, it's going to be the best thing we've ever built. Um, and well, the knock-on effects would be incredible. Some of the charity work you've done and effective altruism, I'm really interested to get your insight or your help for people watching this who maybe don't have a huge amount of resource or or time to, to contribute you know i was speaking to um i had another interview earlier today where the sense of community and giving something is such a powerful force for happiness and or building community what's your take on someone who maybe doesn't have a ton of time or resource how can they help out where would you start if you were in their position um i mean i think you first of all hit the nail on the head that community like we need to one of the parts, uh, one of the main drivers of the Malays as well within, certainly within the US. I can't speak for other countries, but since since moving here, it's even more apparent here than in the UK. Um, is how like physically isolated people are. Like everything is car bound, so there's not those little organic communities. I mean, there are some communities where people can walk around and there's a little local shop and and so on, but. That's what that's what humans really need. We need to be able to know that the person next door to us is our friend to the point that if we need something, they can help us. And the fact that a lot of people don't even know who their neighbors are is a chronic problem, like chronic, chronic problem. So on a really like it, it sounds like a small scale thing, but I think this is a really important thing to do is it is to make it you be like, OK, I am living here. I, even if you're only transient for six months in the place you're living in. Go, you know what? I'm going to make, I'm going to try and make this place that I'm in more of a community uh, than it was before. By the time I'm finished living here, there is more of a community where people know each other and like feel like that they aren't just isolated behind a computer. And their only way for social interaction is either like their friend on the other side of town or someone through Zoom and through a Zoom call. Um, that is a crucially under underrated thing. Um, and doesn't really cost any money and probably minimal time. Um, and then for those who are like interested in the AI issue, uh, I would recommend, and the Moloch issue, I mean, just go and read as much about it as possible. I mean, check out my YouTube channel, which is um, not to pimp my stuff too much, but you yeah. know that talks about Moloch more deeply. I just did a really cool interview with this guy, Daniel Schmattenberger, who I think gets it on a level that very few do. Um, 
Uh, so I'd recommend that. I would also recommend if you're really interested in like understanding like the alignment issue, uh, check out Robert Miles' YouTube channel and Less Wrong, uh, the website lesswrong.com in general. It's a really huge repository of like blogs that's been running for 15 years on the topic of AI safety, but it's so interesting. And it's like, you know, there's some uh, like guidelines of like, oh, this is, this is a category on this. These are, these are some top posts. Um, I'd recommend getting your teeth into that and just exploring and seeing what what resonates. Um, that's a really good resource. Um, but uh, yeah, I, the community one I think is 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 something that's only really like hit me in the last sort of six months. Um, just like I've been craving, you know, I live here in Texas and I love it. I love Austin, but like I can't walk down the road to buy a coffee. I have to drive somewhere every time, and then you don't really, you know, it's those little casual encounters where you see the same person on the street every day and you like nod your head at them and so on. Those are so important for like health, human well-being. It's what we have evolved to need. Uh, we've evolved out of and we need to find a way to recultivate. I think a lot of people are starting to sense that. Um, in some ways, you know, COVID made people be in one physical location a bit more and get to know the people around them. Um, that was one silver lining from it. Um, but making a conscious effort to like actually build local community, I think is key. It's a similarity between typing online or having a conversation with someone, right? You miss out on all the nuance, you miss out on all those opportunities, all the spontaneity. And I think you're absolutely right. Yes. In fact, for so long, people are just looking for that magic spark that, you know, that, that unexpected someone saying hi or buying you a coffee that you just, you just can't, you can't replicate that in any other walk of life. Um, I wanted mm. to. And, 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 and it... oh, go on. Sorry, you go first. No, I was one other thing that yeah, I was going to say. I, I think another issue, again, coming back to social media, is it's just a sheer amount of information loss that goes on when you reduce a human interaction down to like ones and zeros and then turn it into written language. And that's the only way you don't get to when someone says a thing on a, like a contentious topic, you know, let's say a culture wars topic that they actually mean and they like meaning in, in good faith. When it when you see it through like a you know th through your phone or whatever, and you don't get to see the like facial expression that the person has, or the, the amount of time they thought before they wrote it, or whatever like that, well, you're not getting any of that really important context that we would intuitively be picking up on when we have a face to face conversation with someone on a difficult topic. So it's inherently dehumanizing by definition. Um, it, it is it, it is a complexity reduction down to this like single stream of like. Uh, you know, a single stream of thought without all the like supporting information that like helps us process where that person is coming from. I wanted to ask you now, Liv, if that's okay for your advice for any girls or young women or the parents of young girls watching this, because you've had phenomenal success in poker. You've made a huge impact in STEM, which are traditionally male dominated fields, right? And we don't need to go into the reasons mm -hmm. that that is, but you've blazed a trail in, in, in both poker and these, these fields. What of the biggest obstacles you, you you've had to overcome, and how have you managed to make such a big impact in in a way that is is benefiting people all over the world? Hmm. Um. For me personally, I think a lot of, of my biggest obstacles in poker were kind of independent of my of my sex, but more uh, of my personality type. Is that I again? I've always looked for maximum efficiency in doing something so like what's the fastest way i can get known as a poker player uh and win at a thing uh win at a tournament and that didn't always correlate with doing like the hard runt work of of 
research and learning. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, I, I did plenty of training, but I could have done more training. And I think they got a point where I felt like I was good enough to win what I needed and 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 sort of was stopped as you know, I sort of started seeing poker as a means to an end as opposed to like like playing for the love of the game itself. Um and that almost certainly like hurt my not only my results, but also like how I actually felt about myself playing. Um, so arguably that was one of my, um, biggest obstacles was kind of like my own, I don't want to say laziness, but it's something adjacent to that. And also my own hubris and being like, oh, I, I know enough to be good enough, good enough at this. Um, and then, but that's, that's, that's a fairly unusual thing. I think I would say, you know, if more, a more general answer that I think would be useful for, for women, uh, or girls listening to this is I would say women do struggle with imposter syndrome on average far more than men. Um, And uh, so on average, pay attention to that and like notice when you are like giving yourself negative self-talk and just be like, okay, that's just my, that's my, whatever it is, my biology or something telling me like, oh, this is not quite the place for you. If you really love a thing, it's, it's the place for you. If if you find a, 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 a game or a subject stimulating to your soul, then it's for you. And don't listen to the little voice in your head that says, oh, well, I'm not as good as that person. Like, just don't, that, that doesn't matter. Um, and even throughout my bravado years, which I had, uh, I still would sometimes have imposter syndrome as well. Um, that's how powerful it is. And that's not to say there aren't men with it as well. Plenty of men struggle with it, but it's, again, it tends to code more onto females than, than males. Are you someone who's always thrived in high pressure situations? Cause the thought of being at a final table absolutely fills me with abject horror, but how, you know, are you, <laughs> are you someone who thrived in that kind of environment or did you have to deploy some strategies to, to safeguard your mental health and, and your well being whilst in, whilst in there? Oh no, I would get incredibly nervous. Um, you know, when I won a big tournament in Italy, I nearly threw up on the way to the, you know, walking to the casino that morning. I had to stop like multiple times, dry heave. I was so, so nervous. Um, but once I actually sat down and started playing, the nerves just kind of, you know, you get into you get into the flow state or whatever. Um, yeah, it, I, I, I mean, meditating just is a really powerful tool. Um, I didn't have like a specific meditation practice necessary that I would always follow, but um, I like having a mantra that I would repeat to myself, um, one around like focusing on process as opposed to results. You know, if I develop a, a process that I believe in that I know is logical and sound and brings my my A game, then the results will take care of themselves. Something like that. Just reminding, focus on the process, focus on the process. That's the only thing you can control. You can't control what other people do and you can't control what the cards do. Just focus on your own process and grade yourself on that. Um, that would always help getting some exercise that morning, just a little bit, you know, if it's just sprinting down the road and back, you know, just something to like burn off that excess energy. Um, and, um, sounds strange, but like trying to keep in the back of your mind, I'm here to have fun, like try and approach it with a playfulness, a lighthearted playfulness. Um, I found worked best for me personally. Um, the tournament you mentioned yeah. where you won in Italy, where you were you were from nowhere, right? Out of a huge field, you won the tournament. 
Um, I'm not sure we've got time to talk about the, the fact you knew you were going to win that tournament, right? Or, or maybe we have, but but also I'd love it if you could give a little bit of background to to maybe I'm surprised you were dry heaving when you knew you were going to win. But then secondly, you were thrust. Into- I, mean, I mean, I didn't know I was going to win. I, I, I All I can say is I had like a, a funny voice in my head that before, you know, five days prior that was like, you're going to win this tournament. I was like, okay, cool. Like a little, sounded like my own, you know, like a thought basically of some kind. Um, that definitely gave like a, a sort of it smoothed out my like anxiety but i still didn't I, I can't say i felt like i knew you um because like that would be insane right <laughs> um uh i don't know it, it yeah it did you play did it you was, it was definitely did you play significantly different did you deviate from how you'd normally play after that were you taking more risks i'm really interested in how internal mm. voice it affected you or maybe it didn't i don't know well one thing it did you know it it did do for a while was that if i then went to play a tournament i would listen out to hear if i heard that voice and i never heard it again and then you know i i didn't win that many like win big things i mean i won a few things but i didn't have like a win of that scale ever again in, in my professional career um and I, so I don't know whether that was actually, you know, on net, it might've been a negative thing. Cause it's like, I'm like, well, I didn't hear the voice. So I'm not going to win it. You know? And that's kind of self-defeating. That's not, that's not a healthy mindset, right? You, you want to be, um, you, you want to know there's a possibility. I mean, I, I can't say I, it, it wasn't like I took it that seriously. And like, frankly, I, you know, I only ever remember this when someone brings it up. It, it's not, it wasn't like it was always in the back of my mind, but, um, yeah, it, 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 I definitely did pay attention to it sometimes, but there were some, some there were some days though where I feel like you know what, I'm feeling good today. I think I'm going to do well, and like more often than not, I would have like uh, some kind of decent result. Um, yeah. Were you ready for the, the the spotlight? Because winning that tournament, you were subjected to the kind of publicity that that a guy wouldn't have got. Right? You on you, you made the news page for sure. Were you, how did you deal with that sudden, that rise to suddenly every single move, your next performance being scrutinized? You were under the microscope in a way that wouldn't have happened for a man. Were you ready for that? And how did you deal with it? Um, I mean, whether I was ready for it is another question, but did I want it? Yes. No, I was definitely hungry for uh, attention and fame. Um, and I, you know, I, I certainly reveled in it. Let's put it that way. Uh, was I actually mentally ready for it? Probably not. I, I definitely, it, it was definitely a chaotic period of my life. Um, and I, I can't, I can't say it was actually the happiest period either. Like I, I, I wasn't like, I wasn't making particularly good decisions in like my personal life very often. Um, I, I, I definitely still had a bunch of insecurities that I hadn't worked through. Um, that in many ways were like amplified by the you know the fact that I was under the spotlight and having like perhaps unrealistic expectations on myself um, and of the world. Uh, so I wouldn't change it for anything because um, I'm very happy with where I am now. But uh, yeah, it was it it, it 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 was definitely a double edged sword. <laughs> 